Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 16, Land of the Gods. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and on this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be picking up where we left off last time, when St. Francis Xavier sowed the first seeds of the faith in Japan to continue the story of the first Japanese Christians and their heroic witness to God. This is the tale of the Nagasaki Martyrs. As we discussed in episode 15, Christianity got off to a slow start in Japan, despite Xavier's best efforts. The great Jesuit missionary had devoted two years of his life, from 1549 to 1551, to spreading the faith on the islands. But he found that Japanese culture, for all its beauty and sophistication, contained many roadblocks on the path to conversion. The very saintly traits that drew people to Christianity in most other parts of the world the apostolic poverty of missionary priests, their willingness to live among the lowliest people in society, their courage in defiance of worldly powers, these same qualities of Christian sainthood were widely despised in Japan. The Japanese, by and large, were among the most orderly, cultured, and, for that matter, hygienic people on earth in the 16th century. Xavier himself reported that the Japanese are led by reason in everything, more than any other people. Secure in their own traditions, many Japanese felt they had no need for a foreign faith that would disturb their way of life. Indeed, the concept of wa, social harmony, was so deeply ingrained in the culture that it was even used as a name for Japan itself. The land of the gods, as the Japanese called their home, was a consummately civilized country. But this picture of harmony and high culture was deceptive. The ruling samurai class, with its noble etiquettes and esoteric Zen Buddhist philosophy, was supported by millions of peasants who lived in grinding poverty, crushed beneath the endless clan feuds of their masters. Foreign travelers to Japan often spoke of the misery of the masses, which they considered far worse than the conditions of the poor in Europe and even India at the time. The samurai abused their peasants, showing little regard for their welfare and punishing slights against their own nobility with death. In a letter written shortly after his departure from Japan, Xavier described the brutal hierarchy of warlords who ruled over this land of the gods. Quote, the Japanese are very ambitious of honors and distinctions, and think themselves superior to all nations in military glory and valor. They prize and honor all that has to do with war, and all such things, and there is nothing of which they are so proud as of weapons adorned with gold and silver. They always wear swords and daggers, 
both in and out of the house, and when they go to sleep, they hang them at the bed's head. In shorts, they value arms more than any people I have seen. They are excellent archers, and usually fight on foot, though there is no lack of horses in the country. They are very polite to each other, but not to foreigners, whom they utterly despise. They spend their means on arms, bodily adornments, and on a number of attendants, and do not in the least care to save money. They are, in short, a very warlike people, and engaged in continual wars among themselves, the most powerful in arms, bearing the most extensive sway. They have all one sovereign, although for 150 years past, the princes have ceased to obey him, and this is the cause of their perpetual feuds. End quote. Though it was written from an outside point of view, this description is impressively accurate. The sovereign, Xavier mentions, was a military dictator known as the Shogun, who ruled on behalf of the divine but powerless emperor. For longer than anyone living could recall, the Shogun had failed to control his samurai vassals in anything more than name. Japan was in a long and vicious period of turmoil, known as the Sengoku Jidai, the Age of Wars. Rebellions and civil wars had become normal facts of life, as petty warlords fought amongst themselves, and great generals vied to usurp the shogunates from the weak ruling clan of Ashikaga and seize the title for themselves. Needless to say, the people who suffered most from all this chaos were the peasants, the poor wretches who had their lands plundered, their sons butchered, their daughters raped. Seen in this light, the honorable culture of the samurai and their Zen religion look more like the pillars of a tyranny. When we understand this context, we can see that there were actually a great many people in Japan who were fed up with the rule of the samurai and the Buddhist religion that backed them up. The common people of Japan had been trained for centuries to accept their miserable lot in life and to defer to the rigid hierarchy of their betters. But after a hundred years of civil wars, it was getting hard to believe in the harmony, the wa that the samurai claimed to be upholding. The peasants were more and more willing to push back against their lords, even taking up arms in rebellion. In the mountainous province of Iga, for example, the peasants joined forces with local poor samurai to overthrow the great landlords and govern themselves. They succeeded, and enjoyed about 80 years of freedom. When they were finally suppressed in 1581, these farmers continued to fight the nobility as outlaws, giving rise to the myth of the ninja, who supposedly began as something like Japanese Robin Hoods. The point is that despite being indoctrinated by Zen philosophers to accept the tyranny of the samurai, a lot of ordinary people in Japan were ready for a change of faith. It just needed to be presented 
in a way they could appreciate. Enter the Jesuits. As we saw last week, St. Francis Xavier left Japan in 1551, with the intent to return, but died the following year, before he could make it back. He had left behind several companions to guide the young Japanese church, which numbered around 2,000 souls by the time he departed. Over the next couple decades, the Jesuits continued to send missionaries to Japan, yet they were fighting a tough battle against the cultural norms I described earlier. While they won many converts among the poor, they struggled to gain followers in wider Japanese society because they were seen as uncouth barbarians. But all that began to change in 1574, when the Jesuits in Asia were assigned a new leader. A tall, young, vigorous Italian priest named Father Alessandro Valignano. Though based in India, Valignano shared Xavier's interest in Japan, perhaps seeing it as a unique challenge given its closed and complacent elite. Believing that Christianity would never be accepted in Japan so long as Christians acted like outsiders, Valignano told his missionaries to assimilate as far as possible with the ways of the Japanese. Some Jesuits took this tactic pretty far, to the point of dressing in the orange robes of Buddhist monks and using old Buddhist temples as churches. They also began living lives of relative luxury, hosting banquets with lavish feasts, traveling with armed escorts, and otherwise behaving like samurai. The Jesuits, in short, abandoned the apostolic poverty that had once led the Japanese to shun them for acting beneath their station. Needless to say, Valignano's methods proved controversial, both then and now. His emphasis on fitting in with polite society and rubbing elbows with the elites earned him a great many critics. The Franciscans and Dominicans in particular argued that Valignano's approach was an affront to the vow of poverty. Valignano, for his own parts, thought that the austere mendicant friars would drive away more Japanese converts than they could draw, so he lobbied to keep them out of Japan. Yet, even among his fellow Jesuits, Valignano was a divisive character. One leader of the Japanese mission, a Portuguese Jesuit named Francisco Cabral, strongly opposed his accommodationism. When Cabral resisted his methods, Valignano fired him. I'm not going to weigh in on whether Valignano was right or wrong. There's a case to be made on either side. But from a historian's point of view, it's hard to deny that he was successful in winning converts. Under his leadership, the Japanese church grew to the hundreds of thousands. Estimates range up to half a million. And Christianity was no longer seen in Japan just as a weird religion for barbarians. Even noble samurai and great landlords, known as daimyos, began to convert. Some did so for worldly reasons, of course, 
hoping to gain favor with Portuguese merchants, who did a lucrative trade in the port of Nagasaki. But the same could be said of many early converts in Dark Age Europe, whose descendants went on to be faithful Christians for centuries. What's more, Valignano was a strong advocate of Xavier's policy of training native Japanese priests. It was the more rigorous hardliners, like Francisco Cabral, who thought that only Europeans should lead the mission. A view which, today, looks ignorant at best. Consistent with his approach of respecting the local culture whenever possible, Valignano worked to found seminaries that would teach Japanese priests to guide their own people in the future. So if, by the 1570s, the Japanese church was growing, and Christianity was becoming more respectable in Japan, then why are we doing an episode about Japanese martyrs? To understand what went wrong, we need to look a little more closely at the politics of feudal Japan. For it was in those intriguing power struggles that the fates of the Japanese Christians would be decided. As we discussed earlier, by the time the Jesuits arrived on the scene, Japan had been in a state of chaos for over a century. The great daimyo landlords and samurai warrior clans had been tearing the country apart in civil war after civil war throughout the Sengoku Jedi. But in 1559, a new player entered this Japanese Game of Thrones. His name was Oda Nobunaga, head of the powerful Oda clan, and a daimyo of central Honshu. That's the main island of Japan. Over two bloody decades, Nobunaga defeated his rivals, including those autonomous peasants from the mountains of Iga, and consolidated his hold over most of Honshu. Eventually, he grew so powerful that he toppled the shogun himself, ending the reign of the Ashikaga clan, whose frailty had enabled all these civil wars for the past century. Nobunaga was a brutal man, infamous to this day for burning the towns and even the temples of his foes. But he was surprisingly sympathetic to Christians, even if for nakedly cynical reasons. One of the secrets to his success had been his use of firearms, which the Portuguese had introduced to Japan in the last few decades. Most samurai despised the new weapons, viewing them as cowardly contraptions, contrary to Bushido, the samurai code of honor. But Nobunaga was no idealist. He saw the unparalleled potential of guns in warfare, and he used them fully to his advantage. To stay on good terms with the Portuguese, and keep the black powder flowing, he went out of his way to support the young Japanese church and flatter foreign sensibilities, even going so far as to dress in European clothes. Nobunaga never converted to Christianity, of course, but he protected the Jesuit missionaries and helped them build churches, even in the capital city of Kyoto. Tokyo, by the way, 
would not become the capital of Japan until the Meiji Restoration of the late 19th century. It should come as no surprise that Nobunaga's friendly attitude to the barbarians, coupled with his cruelty to his Japanese rivals, won him more than a few enemies. Eventually, the great unifier was betrayed by one of his own generals in 1582. Besieged in Kyoto, he committed seppuku, the ritual suicide expected of a disgraced samurai. For all his might and fame, he had never become shogun. He seems to have refused the title, rather like Caesar refusing to be crowned. Nobunaga's greatest vassal, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, soon took his place by defeating the general who had betrayed his master. But Hideyoshi, oddly enough, could not become shogun either, because he had been born a peasant. In keeping with his usual disdain for tradition, Nobunaga had chosen the best men of any background to lead his armies, and Hideyoshi was the prime example. Dubbed imperial regents by the emperor's court, Hideyoshi would remain the effective ruler of Japan until his death, until 1598. He was an eminently capable leader, but also... Unfortunately, he was the first to turn against the church. The trouble started four years into his rule. In 1586, Hideyoshi held a meeting with the Jesuit father Gaspar Coelho, who had succeeded Francisco Cabral as the head of the Japanese mission. Eager to secure the progress made under Nobunaga, and to find a new patron in Hideyoshi, Coelho regaled the imperial regents with all the perks the Jesuits could bring to his regime. The Jesuits were well-connected, he said, not only within the Catholic Church, but also with the crown of Portugal and its wealthy merchant empire. Upon learning that Hideyoshi was planning to invade Korea, Coelho promised to provide Portuguese gunships to aid the regent's campaign. He also said that he could ensure the support of the Christian daimyos, those Japanese lords who had converted, against Hideyoshi's domestic rivals. No doubt Coelho left the meeting, thinking he'd done very well indeed. There was every indication that the new regime would continue its support for the Jesuits. But if Coelho thought all was well, he was gravely mistaken. For behind his warm personality and cheery smiles, Hideyoshi was a shrewd politician. Unlike Nobunaga, who had seen Christians with their foreign wealth and weaponry as useful allies in his struggle for power, Hideyoshi viewed them as a threat to the order he was seeking to impose. No doubt aware that as a man of low birth, he needed to win the support of the traditional samurai ruling class, the imperial regents was keen to distance himself from the faith of the so-called barbarians. His position was precarious enough without risking the fate of Nobunaga. What's more, 
He suspected the Jesuits of being more powerful than they let on. They were clearly connected to the Portuguese Empire, and he wondered if they might be preparing the way for a Portuguese conquest of Japan using their converts as a fifth column. In this light, Coelho's promises of gunships and Christian daimyos looked like a thinly veiled threat. This wasn't true, of course. The Jesuits really were in Japan to win souls for Christ, not to stage an invasion. But the fear prompted Hideyoshi to act before the Christians could threaten his power. In July of 1587, he met once more with Coelho aboard a ship off the coast of Kyushu, the biggest island in the south of Japan, home to the Portuguese harbor of Nagasaki. This time, he was not so friendly. The Imperial Regents had Coelho woken up in the night and interrogated as to the real purpose of his mission. The priest, rudely awoken and likely afraid for his life, tried to explain his honest intentions, but nothing he said could sway Hideyoshi, who had already made up his mind. In the morning, Hideyoshi decreed that the Jesuits would be expelled from Japan as foreign agents, and that all Japanese Christians must abandon their faith. The penalty for refusal would be death. Despite what it sounds like, this was not in fact the beginning of the great persecution that claimed the lives of so many Christians in Japan. Hideyoshi passed this Edict of Intolerance in 1587, but the bloodshed wouldn't actually start for another decade. So why the delay? Simply put, even if Hideyoshi distrusted Christians and wanted them gone in the long run, he could not deny the benefits they brought to his regime, namely guns, money, and knowledge of the outside world. So for almost ten years, the imperial regents decided not to enforce his own decree, turning a blind eye to the clandestine missions of the Jesuits, and even allowing them to work publicly as interpreters at his courts, while they carried on their true ministry in secret. Essentially, you could still be a Christian, as long as you didn't cause trouble. But six years later, in 1593, trouble appeared in the form of a new actor on the stage, the Spanish. We saw last week how the Spanish monarchy, since the days of Ferdinand and Isabella, had been busily devouring the rest of Iberia. The Basque realm of Navarre, home to St. Francis Xavier, had been among its first victims. And in 1580, Portugal had joined the list, after being conquered by King Philip II of Spain. This is Philip II of Spanish Armada fame. Despite the union of the crowns of Spain and Portugal under a single ruler, the two nations continued to be governed separately, and their people remained bitter rivals. The Spanish promised not to interfere with Portuguese affairs in Asia, 
but that was a promise bound to be broken. What was true in politics was likewise true in religion, as the rivalry between Spanish Franciscans and Portuguese Jesuits spilled over into the Japanese mission. Believing that the Portuguese Jesuits had lost their way, and, no doubt, eager to outcompete them as missionaries and break their stranglehold on Japanese trade, a group of Spanish Franciscans arrived illegally in Japan in 1593 and began openly flouting Hideyoshi's edict against Christianity. To the more worldly Jesuits like Valignano, who was, by the way, still head of the Jesuits in Asia, the rash behavior of these Franciscans confirmed their long-standing fears about letting the friars into Japan. By refusing to work with the authorities, the Franciscans were jeopardizing everything the Jesuits had worked so hard to build. But surprisingly, even though the Franciscans had shown up uninvited and flagrantly defied the law by preaching in public, Hideyoshi did not move against them at first. Quite the contrary. When he heard of their activities, he actually met with them in person and allowed them to carry on their work. Once again, what looks on the surface like inconsistency was likely a cunning political move by Hideyoshi. He realized that the Spanish and Portuguese were rivals, and he knew he could play them against each other. So for the next three years, the Franciscans were able to preach alongside the Jesuits, who had tried to keep them out of Japan for decades. Hideyoshi, now gaining from both sides, continued to look the other way. But, in October of 1596, a Spanish merchant vessel named the San Felipe, sailing to Mexico from the Philippines, got caught in a storm and blown off course to Japan. She was wrecked on the island of Shikoku, that's the one between central Honshu and southern Kyushu, and her expensive cargo was quickly seized by the local daimyo. Keen to recover his goods, the captain of the ship decided against heading to Portuguese Nagasaki, the obvious choice being the hub for European expats in Japan, and instead sought out his fellow Spaniards, the Franciscans. This raised the suspicions of the local authorities, who had little experience with the Spanish. Upon being questioned by a Japanese official about his origins and aims, the ship's pilot took out a map of the Spanish Empire and proceeded to tell his host all about the great deeds of his race. Pointing to the Americas, a whole hemisphere utterly unknown to the Japanese, the pilot bragged about the size of Spain's colonies, the conversion of its conquered subjects to Christianity, and the recent union with Portugal. He was acting like a blowhard, to be sure, but he probably thought his boasts would open up Japan to Spanish merchants, who, up until then, had been excluded by the Portuguese trade monopoly. It was all in the national interest, giving Spain some leverage against Portugal. But when word got back to Hideyoshi, the Imperial Regents was incensed 
He had been under the impression that the Spanish and Portuguese were not only rivals, which they certainly were, but also independent nations, which they technically weren't anymore. The news of their union, along with the incredible extent of the Spanish Empire and its use of missionaries as colonial agents, was all the proof he needed that his very worst fears had been true, that the Christians were all working together in a grand conspiracy against Japan. Again, this wasn't true. Quite the opposite, as we've seen. But it was enough to push Hideyoshi over the edge. In the winter of 1597, he finally invoked his decree against Christianity that had been on the books for a decade, ordering all Franciscans to be rounded up by the state. Even at this late date, he still hesitated to go after the Jesuits. They were simply too valuable to lose. But he knew he could make an example of these upstart Franciscans. In the event, three Jesuits, one priest and two seminarians, all of them Japanese, were caught by mistake. They were joined by six Franciscan priests, alongside 17 Japanese and Korean lay brothers. All 26 Christians were condemned to death at Kyoto, then tortured, mutilated, and dragged more than 600 miles along the road to Nagasaki. It is said that they sang the Te Deum on their final journey. When they got there, on the 5th of February, 1597, they were marched up onto a hill above Nagasaki and crucified. In a stroke that did them more honor than their killers could have known, the martyrs were even impaled with lances as they hung on the cross like our Lord. We know very little about most of these men. Their lives are hidden from us. We have only their names. Of the ones we can identify, a few stand out to me. St. Philip of Jesus, a Mexican Franciscan who became his country's first saint to be canonized. St. Gonzalo Garcia, the son of a Portuguese soldier and a Konkani woman from Bombay, and St. Paul Miki, a Japanese Jesuit seminarian who preached forgiveness to his executioners while he was hanging on the cross. I'm afraid that today's story does not have a cheerful ending. At least, not on this side of heaven. The Nagasaki martyrs were the first Christians to be killed for their faith in Japan, but sadly, they would not be the last. The imperial regent Hideyoshi died the following year, in 1598, leaving his young son as heir, 
He appointed five regents to rule the country until his son came of age. But they inevitably threw Japan back into civil war as they fought amongst themselves for supremacy. In the end, one man emerged victorious. Tokugawa Ieyasu, an old protege of Oda Nobunaga, and one of the greatest political geniuses of history. The peace he established after defeating his rivals in the year 1600 was destined to last for over two centuries, and his dynasty, the Tokugawa Shogunate, would see Japan develop into a rich and powerful empire. Fans of the classic James Clavell novel Shogun may know him as Toranaga. But Tokugawa Ieyasu was no friend of the church, and under his regime, the persecution of Christians would escalate to horrifying heights of brutality. I'll probably return to the subject in a future episode, but for now, it's enough to say that the Nagasaki martyrs set an example that many brave Christians would follow in the years to come. The story of Japanese Christianity is not a happy one, yet it's all the more inspiring for the hardships endured by its heroes. We would all do well to learn from those Japanese Christians who remained loyal to their savior despite centuries of terrible persecution. The 26 martyrs of Japan were revered as saints by Japanese Christians for hundreds of years before being canonized in 1862. Today they are commemorated on the 6th of February, the day after their crucifixion. Together, they are the patrons of Japan and of all persecuted Christians. If you'd like to learn more about their lives and deepen your devotion to them, I've included prayers and other resources in the show notes as usual. You'll also find links to our Patreon, where you can support the show and receive patron benefits, as well as to my email address, where you can send your questions for our upcoming Q&A episode. May the Nagasaki Martyrs, glorious heroes of the Church, come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thank you.